Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. We are very glad that you have joined us this morning. We have the second of two shows that we are talking about, the impact of the military service, being a veteran, and the military family, especially the caregivers. And it is October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we are really trying to draw attention to a silent epidemic that affects so many of our families, and I think the general public is not aware. And so these shows are meant to help not only those who are in the community, the military and veteran community, but also to be objects that can be shared, subjects that can be shared with neighbors and family and friends and clergy and anyone that needs to understand more of what is happening to a very small percentage of our population. So we're going to be talking today to Stacey Bannerman, who is the author of an amazing book called Homefront 911. And Stacy's book talks about the impact of war uh, combat on families and how the family is affected. Together with me today is co-host Tassambra Kimes and welcome to you Tassambra. Thank you. Good morning. I'm, I'm happy to be on today. You know, the war changes people and it's so important. It, it's so important to, to talk about these things. And so I'm, I'm really glad. I haven't yet read the book, but I am going to be purchasing it. And I'm just listening to the show from last week. I mean, there's so much to cover and it's just there, so important. You know, you're so funny. We talked about that yesterday, Stacy and I, because we could really turn this into a number of shows from different perspectives, whether it's from the legislative side, whether it's from the caregiving side, particularly, whether it's from uh, the effects of war on children, right. secondary trauma, generational trauma, um, the effects on the guard and the reserve. I mean, it, it's amazing that we could put all this in. So when I spoke with Stacy yesterday, we, we've tried to pare it down, but if we need to, we will absolutely come back with further programs because it is such an important topic. And I did indeed read the book and went back and read some additional parts of it last mm -hmm. night. And if I could only share the highlights off of my iPad with everyone, I, I really would because I kept highlighting phrases and comments. And I will say to everyone who's listening, um, you can go to stacybannerman.com while you're listening to the show and read more about the book and her experiences. And I'll let her obviously introduce herself as we get going. But the book is so eminently readable and so interesting in terms of the stories, the reality. There's no fluff here. And it is entertaining as well as it's eye-opening. And so I, I say that with true sincerity because I'm an avid reader. I absolutely love learning. And I learned a lot in this book. And I think we all can learn an enormous amount. So as a little of, bit of an introduction with uh, about Stacy, she was a caregiver to her military husband who came back 
different from war, as so mm-hmm. many do. And she has experienced life on the edge with caregiving, tying into our topic of last week. And the high precedence, somewhere in the range of 50 to 80 percent of aggression and violence toward caregivers. There's also the family aspects of things, which she has fought at the Oregon state level, single-handedly writing legislation that is, I'll let her tell you more about that, but very important legislation because I think many people know that we, we put our military warriors up on a pedestal. But we often forget the families that support them. When I talk about, you know, veteran caregiver and and working with the caregivers of our wounded, ill, and injured, the response I usually get is, well, doesn't the VA do that? And the answer is, (laughs) yes and no. Um, but, But in particular, those dealing with the wounds of war, the changes, the moral injuries, the communication and engagement in the family injuries, all sorts of things that change are really being handled by those who live at home. And so Stacy's book, Homefront 911, is a very personal, uh, strongly researched, serious book about the risks, the challenges, and often the you don't know until you're there, aspects of being part of a combat veteran family. So without further ado, Stacy, I, I am very enthralled by this topic and what we can do to share a lot of information in this program today. So I'd love to introduce you and please share your background and what drew you to this. So welcome to Military Network Radio, Stacy Bannerman. Oh, thank you so much and uh, good morning to both of you. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and um, and our shared uh, concern for and commitment to serving um, our uh, military families and our troops and our veterans. Uh, the the book is is truly a labor of love, mm-hmm. and um, it was the book actually that I'd really never wanted to write. I'm sure uh, because it was so incredibly. Uh, difficult because so much of what uh, I talk about in that book, and and I I don't hold back um, uh, because this um, this topic, the subject matter, our military families, uh, the the men and women who um, serve this nation, and the people who are there to hold them and heal them when they come home, are far too important for us to um, not put the real truth on the table. Uh, Mm -hmm. That said, a a very, very difficult book. Uh, This is the book I did not want to write. Um, I actually started writing it back in about 2010, 2011, and I kept putting it on the shelf, kept Mm -hmm. putting it on the shelf. The title for the book, Homefront 911, uh, the book itself is really an emergency call from the American home front to the rest of the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, the uh, the post-9-11 wars, the way that they have been prosecuted, um, less than 1% of the population uh, has been directly impacted. Less than 1% of the population uh, has, been, has been serving. Uh, with these wars, uh, the troops didn't get drafted, the families did. Mm-hmm. And we've got more military family members uh, in the post 9-11 era than we do men and women in uniform. And it was 
My friend Trisha Radens uh, relaying to me the account, and this is in the book, um, uh, I think it's chapter two, Unintended Casualties, relaying to mm-hmm. me the account of the emergency call, the 911 call that she had to make. Wow. When her, when her boy uh, committed suicide uh, during uh, his father's second tour in Iraq. Mm-hmm. The book has so many compelling stories that I highly encourage anyone with a family member, uh, anyone who knows somebody in the community, anyone who has interest in better understanding the stress and strains of the profound effect of sending families into war. I, I, I fear that there's so people are numb almost to thank you for your service. Um, and I don't want to say that superficial. Thank you for thanking people for their service. But there's so much more that can be done to support families within the system itself and among the families and neighborhoods that are working with people. Can you paint a picture for what it means? And I know this is a difficult question, but if you could paint a picture for what it means to be a military family when you did not raise your hand, but you are indeed serving. Well, there's a significant, and that the meaning of that uh, to a certain extent, of course, is highly individual. uh, And it does differ uh, from uh, active duty or between active duty and guard and reserve. Now I can speak from my experience is uh, the uh, spouse of uh, a guard, Army Army National Guard uh, soldier uh, that, that wasn't ever supposed to go to war. Mm-hmm. And the psychological, because that um, that commitment with the guard is, is historically one week in a month, two weeks a year. The right. psychological adjustment uh, be, uh, that that was required and required to happen very very quickly uh, from being a civilian uh, family to being a military family, I guess with with a foot in both worlds. Um, right. Uh, was 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 pretty pretty significant, and there was no ramping up for that. Uh, with the what happened with these with the you know in the post 9/11 era, uh, especially from about uh, 2004 to 2010, uh, those those six seven years in there were so intense uh, that guard and reserve, for all intents and purposes, um, stepped into the shoes of active duty, and mm-hmm. active duty just became hyper active duty. Right. And the families um, had to make that shift right along with them. But often without the you know, we didn't get training. Right. We don't go to boot camp. Right. We don't have drill weekend. Uh, it was just an expectation that was put upon us that we would very, very rapidly make that shift to wartime footing. Um, but historically, that is the ask that has been made of the nation for the first time in the history of the United States of America. That ask was only made of the military families. And just as the the consequences of having less than 1% of the population bear the whole burden of, of combat and combat deployments, um, we have seen the, um, the consequences of that, and we will continue to see the consequences of that, um, that, that, that uh, imbalance of, 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 of duty and service. When you have less than 1% carry that, uh, it, it puts an immense pressure 
on that uh, population. Well, the same is true for the families, and that's why um, what we saw with the families, again, particularly during the height of these tours, um, it, the families' levels of mental health uh, diagnosis, mental health problems, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, stress, up to and including suicidal ideation, was virtually comparable, virtually identical to that of the service members themselves. Which is a shocking statistic. And we have to go on a short break. But when we come back, I, I have a big question for you. And I look forward to asking it. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio. And we'll be right back after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating, and exercise burns more calories. According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same. But if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. It's marching Only six golfers in history have ever shot a hole-in-one while taking part in the Ryder Cup. Of course, the hole-in-one isn't a phenomenon for professional golfers only. Hackers, whiffers, and foozlers get them, while some PGA Tour pros still await their first. According to Golf Digest, who has been tracking info for more than 60 years, the odds of getting a hole-in-one for a professional is 5,000 to 1 and 12,000 to 1 for the rest of us. Tiger Woods shot his first hole-in-one when he was only 6 years old. And John Elway hit a hole-in-one on his 40th birthday. Now there's a good reason to frolic, go or celebrate. I figured out why golf instructors insist you keep your head down and look at the ball. It's so that you can't see them laughing. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are talking with Stacy Bannerman and continuing our discussion on the effects of war on the military family. And I'm going to ask to use a word that I think most of us find uniformly disturbing at this point. But Stacy, talk about the fact that um, the the I'll quote put this in quotes training and understanding upon reintegration, etc., has been based on the fact of the military family, and this is in quote, resilience and adjustment to the, quote, new normal. Can you talk about those two things and why those are such hot button words? <laughs> well, Sorry. <laughs> I would be happy to. 
Excellent. Uh, by, by about by about 2006, I'll be honest, I'm thinking actually about I was at a uh, hearing at the United States uh, Senate. Uh, um, Senate, I think it was the Ar Senate Armed Services Committee, and they had um, uh, were having a hearing, and they had had all of they had the all the they had flag wives there. I mean, this was the big deal, right? Uh, Sheila Casey, who was oh, oh my sure. God, I love her. Yeah, uh, Sheila sure. Casey was there, um, but they were testifying, and this is 2006. By 2006, the military families, the op tempo was such that the military families were already tired of those phrases, resilience and mm -hmm. the new normal. And here's what I have to say about resilience. You know, that, that phrase is bandied about in the military, but, but the truth of the matter is that um, even rubber bands, you know, we talk about resilience, but, but, but think about it like a rubber band. Even a rubber band with too much use, with too much wear and tear, when, we get, when a rubber band is stretched and stressed and, and pulled too far, that rubber band will snap. And the yes, same is true of, 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 of our families, of, of human beings being asked, because again, you know, this goes back to what I'm saying, that, that asking less than 1% of the population to carry 100% of the load puts an unbelievable strain on that population. And, and the families are a part of that uh, proposition. And, and, then, and then this phrase about the new normal, what the, there's, <laughs> Sorry, um, their new normal, nothing is normal. Nothing will ever be normal again. You can find mm -hmm. a different way forward, but nothing, right. there's, it's not normal. It's not normal. And, and at least, I mean, my experience has been, and that of so many others, um, uh, you know, uh, caregivers, because I really focus in the book, Homefront 911, I really focus on um, the families of the wounded warriors, the families mm -hmm. of injured veterans. So, so the book isn't about, I'm not, I'm not proposing that all veterans are wounded and all veterans are injured, and this is happening in all families. It's not. I'm focusing on the families of the wounded warriors and how they are wounded as well. But when less than one third of 1% of this nation's population are the caregivers who are bearing the burden of the country's commitment to care for wounded veterans, I can assure you there is nothing normal that is happening in those homes anymore. Amen. War. Yes changes people, whether it's PTSD, traumatic brain injury, chronic family stress, anxiety, unique relationship dynamics. I think one of the things that struck me out of the book was you went back and formed an entire chapter on the biology of what goes on with the kind of stress that comes from caregiving with PTSD, TBI, and the wounded, ill, and injured who have unique cultural differences among how they accept caregiving or don't accept caregiving. Can you talk to some of the significant biology that exists? Because I think that basis forms a good foundation for us to then launch from. Well, I, I was sure, and, and the, yeah, it's the biology of the war at home, and I was, I was absolutely astounded. Um, by by what I found in the research, uh, you know, indicating the uh, the link between chronic stress, 
uh, caregiving, and, and, and I'm saying caregiving for a PTSD combat vet, um, what, what the studies have shown across the board is that not only does the veteran have a significantly shorter lifespan, mm-hmm. so does the spouse. Wow. You know, you're talking about all the stress that, that the spouse deals with, that caregivers, you know, they often have immune system suppression, mm-hmm. you know, so how does violence factor in with that? Well, very often they, uh, female caregivers with, with a really high stress levels, and, and we have also seen that uh, caregiving a um, combat veteran, the stress level of being a caregiver for a combat vet, that stress level has consistently been found to be more than double that of um, uh, caregivers for um, civilian um, uh, individuals. Female caregivers with those really high stress levels have been found to have severely compromised immune systems and cellular damage that is the equivalent to a decade or more of additional aging. Uh, oh my, that's horrifying. The mm-hmm. consequences of that are horrifying. We know that uh, women and anyone who, who is the uh, victim of domestic abuse or domestic violence, um, that, that has got epigenetic uh, implications, right? Um, and 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 that and and that those are then heritable. So what we're seeing now, we have created a whole pattern here, especially with this post 9/11 population. But you know, th- this is not the first. This has happened with the children of Vietnam veterans um, who, who were wounded in that war, um, and 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 in previous wars. Um, for example, children of uh, PTSD. Uh, you know, Vietnam vets with PTSD, mm-hmm. those those kids, their suicide rates are higher. Are nearly triple, are nearly, mm-hmm. no, not higher, tri- nearly triple mm. that of civilian children. They're, they're, they are born with much higher cortisol levels. Uh, and, and, and those levels do not significantly lower, for, you know, even after you know, several years. So, so they, they, they're inheriting, it, it, it is an epigenetic, it is outside of or on top of the gene, but it is heritable. We are literally um, sentencing the, 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 the families and children and grandchildren it's of wounded a combat vets terrible to sadder, cycle. sicker, shorter lives. And the domestic violence component only exacerbates that, particularly when we know that. And again, I want to be very, very clear. I am in no way, shape, or form saying that all veterans commit um, intimate partner violence or domestic abuse. They do not. Mm-hmm. They do not. That is not what this is about. What this is about is a joint study released by the VA and the University of North Carolina in 2014 found that over half of Iraq or Afghanistan vets struggling with PTSD and alcohol abuse had engaged in severe aggression or violence in the previous year, usually against the spouse. We also have seen other studies that found that uh, veterans with PTSD were significantly more likely to perpetrate violence to their partners. And that kind of violence, what we need to keep in mind, over 80% of them had committed at least one act of severe violence in the previous year, uh, including stabbing or strangulation. I was on a conference call with a bunch of wives of combat vets, I don't know, 2008, 2009, 2010, Um, and 
Somebody asked on a phone call, one of them asked the question, who hasn't been strangled mm -hmm. by their veteran? Wow. And there was silence in the line because every one of us probably at that moment was reflecting upon the time when it had happened to them. You know, Stacey, there was one sentence that jumped out at me because I've heard it from so many, many countless caregivers. And it was this, when the returning combat vet comes home, and these are your words, vibrating with combat-infused adrenaline, recklessness, and rage. That picture is very familiar to many caregivers. So my question to you is, is the family member trained, supported, or assisted psychologically and physically by the DNVA? No. That's and. and in fact, the, if anything, uh, the opposite is happening in, 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 in too many circumstances. There's a subtle kind of grooming that is being done. Mm -hmm. with the veteran spouse um, and, and caregiver, a subtle kind of grooming in which that spouse or caregiver is being given a brochure telling them to adapt and adjust and, and that this is their new normal. And what they need to do is change their behaviors so they're not triggering the veteran. And it puts the, 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 the burden of the responsibility on the uh, family member, on the uh, spouse, on the caregiver. It is normalizing abnormal behaviors. And then often when those behaviors are reported, the first time um, uh, that there is a strangulation, because people need to understand this does not generally, uh, veteran intimate partner violence often does not follow the same trajectory as what we've come to understand the, you know, Minnesota model mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, for domestic abuse. It's an explosion. It's mm -hmm. not an escalation. And, and uh, um, but there is that subtle kind of grooming. And there is too often, if you go to someone within the system, um, is, well, what did you do? You know, that, that question. And I know that civilian victims of abuse get that as well. Um, but that is coming from the healthcare providers and practitioners, everyone whom is um, uh, mandated uh, as a uh, as a mandatory reporter, and that reporting is not happening. No, it's not consistent. We have very little time, but I wanted you to comment on the fact that it appears as though that the system itself is asking the caregivers to become complicit in excusing this violence rather than treating it. Very much so. Very much so. That's exactly what is what is what is occurring um, far too often and uh, far too far too many are paying the price for that. Um, and and too often it includes their lives, as it did with Christy Huddleston. Yeah, I would love it if you would share the story with us after the break. We're coming up on a short break. And I, I think what you're seeing to this is that this is complicated, and we will talk further after the break about the very complicated fact of war and the effects on the family. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Secret 
cuisines and sacred rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Velocity is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom, ingenuity, and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures, and cures to her audience in workplaces, seminars, and salons. Her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist, and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine, and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. It's frequently drive on a street named Cemetery Hill, which makes me wonder who got to name these streets anyway. Whoever named Psychopath Road in Michigan, for example, must have been off his cursive. I mean, who would ever want that for a mailing address? In Alabama, there is a This Ain't It Road. I guess this is where a lot of lost drivers end up. Personally, I would like to live on Slim Bottoms Road in Mount Vernon, New York, even though some might say that would constitute a bit of a teradiddle. That's a little white lie. So what do you call the business of naming things? Onomastics. Finally, there's Little Schmuck Road in Indiana and Cannibal Road in California. I'm sure that keeps people from trespassing. It's Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Radio. We are talking with Stacy Bannerman. Stacy, let's talk about Christy first and then move into the isolation that caregivers and even military family experience. Uh, Christy Huddleston uh, was a friend of mine and uh, she was actually working at the VA. Uh, She uh, here uh, in White City, Oregon, uh, standing up the the VA's uh, caregiver program. And her husband had done multiple tours Iraq and Afghanistan, and he ended up um, murdering her, shooting her in front of their little boy, uh, who called nine one one as she was as she was bleeding out on the floor. And I have um, and that is why this book and our conversation and hopefully every every conversation um, that, that, that comes from this, uh, we've got to make it okay for the 
veteran's family or the combat injured caregiver to first of all know that she's not alone in this Mm -hmm. she isn't the only one you think you're crazy when this is happening you do Um, and you think you're the only one and you're not but we've got to turn the ship around in our institutions and frankly within this nation that has has set up a, a, a system and a culture and a country in which the wives of combat vets are considered collateral damage. That's not acceptable. And the Christie Huddleston Act that I have written and that my Oregon senators are going to be reintroducing this next session is to institute right now a transition funding for those veteran caregivers and their children in the event that there is uh, intimate partner violence, domestic abuse going on in that home. The DOD provides transition funds um, to support the uh, family of, uh, you know, of the service member to, to escape the abuse and um, have the financial wherewithal uh, and funds to um, start a new life. And the, the VA needs to be doing that right now as well, because not more than a week goes by and I get another report of another caregiver who has, who has been murdered um, or, or, or nearly killed at the hands of her husband. And the profound isolation of the uh, veterans caregiving population um, only exacerbates that. There, as I said earlier in the show, only one third of 1% of this nation's population is bearing the burden of this country's commitment to care for wounded veterans. And the, the, um, so the, the families and, 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 and the caregivers uh, are so, so alone in this. And there's really no safe place to go. And um, it's very, 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 it's almost impossible, especially once, once your service member is out of the service, mm. uh, your whole life changes. And I, I, there isn't a reintegration um, <laughs> program for the families, and God knows we need one. It took me, because the whole, the whole war and the deployments and all of this, I mean, it, it changed every single dimension of my life. And it took me years to figure out um, how to have a conversation with uh, civilian people again, because nothing in their lives had been impacted by the war and nothing in my life had not been. You know, for the last decade, if I'm doing the math properly, legislation has been proposed that will take a look at tracking depression, anxiety, suicidal attempts, IPV, all kinds of things in the military family to track it. And each and every time it is voted down and the budgets are so low, like $650,000 a year, one year, I recall Mm -hmm. the number. And yet it is still not passed. Is this because in your opinion, and I recognize this is an opinion, in your opinion, is this because it's we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to have this stigma. And we, we absolutely don't want to air our dirty laundry. I think it's all of the above as well as, um, well, 
I'll say it. Uh, I think it's also, <laughs> to a certain extent, who has been in control of Congress, uh, because there's a real disconnect between um, what uh, is said about supporting the troops and what is done about supporting the troops. And, 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 and let's be clear, not, 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 not either of those political parties are taking the prize home on that one. Um, <laughs> well, it's just, that's just true. And, and the other thing is, if, because, you know, all of, all of the financial um, uh, Congress, if, if Congress, one of the things that really drives congressional allocations of funds, as you know, is research. And, you know, I was saying to these folks, God, when I, you know, when I got the um, um, hearing, uh, first ever hearing ever held by the United States Congress on the mental health impacts of war on the families of veterans, uh, that was back in 2008. And, you know, I, I was telling them then, look, people, uh, we don't need more studies. We need more services. But Amen. In, yeah. In Congress, you know, it's the research and the studies that do drive um, congressional allocations and, 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 and funded commitments. Okay, fine. But that's the thing. If they start putting real numbers on just how severe this problem is, the problem, you know, military family member suicides were so high that the Pentagon couldn't track them. And well, the Pentagon start, is not tracking it. That's right. But if that's they start the putting problem. numbers on that, what happens then is Congress is going to have to start putting dollars on it. And if we take a look at just how broad and deep casualties are mm -hmm. as a result of, of, of this country's, um, you know, um, uh, uh, combat engagements, if we really take a look at, at what these wars have done to the families mm -hmm. and previous wars as well, um, then if we've got a shred of integrity as a nation, we're going to have to do some things differently. We are going to have to fund a, a, a um, you know, veterans uh, a subcommittee on the families of veterans. We are going to have to um, perhaps take a look at if we're giving, um, you know, not giving, providing disability payments um, to veterans who can prove a service-connected injury, do we have then a moral and ethical and, and legal obligation to consider providing disability payments to families who have sustained service-connected injuries. Do we have to do that? Do we have a legal and moral and ethical uh, uh, responsibility? Do we have a responsibility of care to families whose mental health injuries were a direct result of, of, of these wars? You see what I'm saying? Of, of course I do. We're talking a lot of money. No, it, it does boil down to money, but I think it's also fairly fascinating that I doubt that many of our listeners know that Congress didn't pass legislation mandating traumatic brain injury testing until 2007. No, We'd already not. been at war for many, many years. And that is one of the reasons, in my opinion, that we're still fighting diagnosis of TBI. You played high school football so that's your problem or you came to this from a car accident you had before but I, I literally know hundreds of veterans and their caregivers who are seeking to find greater understanding about TBI PTSD and you're right we don't need more studies we need more services but unfortunately you don't see a lot of that happening because the culture and the agencies has simply not changed with the times 
No, they, they, they have not. And it is because, as well, the nation was never invested in these wars. Which also raises the increase of heightened PTSD, because mm -hmm. when you can't define the enemy, you can't have the resources to complete your mission, you're not able to define what goes on, it isn't supported at home fully, you are, but the war itself is not, right. all that leads to moral ambiguity, which mm -hmm. raises the rates of PTSD symptoms and, and moral injury and all of that. Can you speak a bit to that? Well, I've said for, for, for quite quite a while that I, I don't that 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 we that that, that uh, the, the way that these wars were uh, uh, prosecuted and, mm -hmm. and all of the things that that you have just stated, um, there there is not a better recipe for um, how to uh, manifest uh, PTSD. Mm -hmm. That's 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 how you do it. If you want to um, uh, bird, overburden a population, if you want to do everything, if you want to put every single factor into place, with the, and, and, and the, with the outcome being uh, the um, uh, d development of uh, PTSD or incurring the injury, incurring the injury of PTSD, those are the conditions, and that's what we did. And by by we a nation, and, but people have turned their backs on that. They turned away from that. I mean, have, this country checked out of these wars uh, by 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 2008, uh, as much as they'd ever checked into them. Um, and and that is not, uh, you know, and that's and that unfortunately, um, you know, is not going to change. I think we missed the boat on that. I think there are things that we can do now, uh, but but we really missed the boat on that. Unfortunately, our veterans, our veterans. Our veterans and their families are going to pay the price for that for the rest of their lives. And there's something about that that makes me absolutely furious. i got to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. It makes me absolutely furious because that's why we have got these, this, this profoundly complicated uh, traumas that we're seeing in, 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 in some of our returning veterans. Again, I want to be clear. Not all veterans that, that, that are deployed or go into combat um, are, are, are wounded. They, not all of them have TBIs. Not all of them have PTSD. Not all of them have moral injury or other injuries. But for those that do, it is complicated. It is complex. And to come back to a country. Stacy, we've got to go on a break right now. We will be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. It's Marching Network. Only six golfers in history have ever shot a hole-in-one while taking part in the Ryder Cup. Of course, the hole-in-one isn't a phenomenon for professional golfers only. Hackers, whiffers, and foozlers get them, while some PGA Tour pros still await their first. According to Golf Digest, who has been tracking info for more than 60 years, the odds of getting a hole-in-one for a professional is 5,000 to 1 and 12,000 to 1 for the rest of us. Tiger Wood shot his first hole-in-one when he was only 6 years old. And John Elway hit a hole-in-one on his 40th birthday. Day. Now there's a good reason to frolic, go zine, or celebrate. I figured out why golf instructors insist you keep your head down and look at the ball. 
It's so that you can't see them laughing. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. This is Toginet, cutting-edge radio. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. I, I think we are finding ourselves so tied in talking on the breaks that it's hard to remember what was on the break and what was public with you. So we will come and take a step back because after the show last week and after speaking with Stacy, I, I have had many, many conversations with caregivers recently and we're coming back to the umbrella topic of violence or aggression within the family being directed at the caregiver. And the conversation seemed to come with this common thread that said, I, I'm being told that the violence I endure was blamed on me and the PTSD. And that always brings to mind to me, okay, then what concrete steps need to be taken, can be taken to ensure the medical team cohesion with IPV and the culture shift that needs to take place at VA to address this as opposed to brush it under the rug? Well, um, I, I would say they need to have, the VA needs to have me come in and do some trainings with <laughs> those folks. There's Excellent. I, 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 Step I, one. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 but and, and that is so and that is so common. And if you look at the literature that and that's what I was speaking to earlier, the literature that is handed out and uh, in, in produced by the DOD and the VA is that's given to the families is your veteran could be different, he could be irritable, blah blah blah, and telling us what not to do. Mm-hmm. The onus, as I said earlier, the onus uh, uh, for you know the responsibility is is put on the uh, family members, particularly right. uh, the spouse, and we are the ones who are that that it's we're not well. Don't trigger him. Don't say this. Don't do that. You have to understand. And this is PTSD. Blah blah blah. Now come on. It's not that I don't have empathy. I've got a truckload of empathy. This is not about that. If a veteran can control themselves well enough that they are not um, committing um, any, uh, you know, um, acts of aggression or violence uh, outside of the home, then that suggests that it may well not actually be the PTSD itself. That is a significant contributing factor, and as such, it needs to be acknowledged as such. It needs to be acknowledged that it creates the risk, and the onus and responsibility um, needs to be put back upon the person that is responsible or potentially responsible for that. Um, because because the thing is, uh, you know, one vet had said to me once, and he was he was kind of joking, but it's kind of true. He said, "I don't know if I'm suicidal or homicidal." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's I mean that's that's just that is, that is just that that is just the truth of it. So so yeah, the VA first of all, um, they they need to put a lot of truth on the table right now about this, right now. And they need to stop playing games with it because those games are costing lives. They're costing lives and they're destroying families. And, 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 and it is a failure of the first order of their mandate and responsibility as, as healthcare providers. So that's the first thing. They need to be putting some truth on the table there. They need to be 
doing those um, trainings and and the culture shift and and within the um, within the veterans population, there's either been an absolute avoidance of talking about this because there's such shame. There's such mm-hmm. shame. There's oh. You know, and oh my God, I've got such compassion for that. But, but, but not processing that shame to get to that point of acceptance and responsibility ensures that you were stuck in that behavior and in that pattern. So, so the beginning is the education. It is the conversation. It is breaking the silence. It is. Let's do a little reminder here of who was responsible for their own behaviors. Let's stop blaming the victim. Let's stop holding the family members accountable um, and let's start holding the uh, VA accountable and the VSOs accountable and the providers accountable and 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 let's start changing that culture right now as if lives are depending on it because they are. Well one of the things that I, I don't know if our listeners are aware of and I'd like you to explain this further is that Veterans' wives are not included in a long list of at-risk populations for intimate partner violence. Well, they are in the state of Oregon because I wrote the language to make sure of it. But there's only, what, fewer than a half dozen states? Yeah. And that needs to change, and that's one of the legislative uh, you know, legislative pieces. It, so, and, that, and that's how we, and that's how we change uh, the culture. But this has been, this has been one of the shadow elements, if you will, of the American psyche around the cost of combat. Mm-hmm. We have not wanted to acknowledge, you know, or look at that. Um, but, 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 but it's essential and it's critical that we do as human beings and as, and I think as, um, as, as Americans. Um, so that language, like I said, it's it's in the um, uh, state of Oregon, Department of Justice, mm-hmm. uh, in their in their uh, Violence Against Women Act um, RFPs and and documents, and that should be in. I, I appreciate the uh, reminder of that because that gives me one more thing to do next time I go to D.C. Um, I'll be talking with my senators. Uh, about getting, <laughs> like you didn't already have a long list <laughs> about, about getting, but but it's all of those things. So that we've got, so that we've got funding that is that is one. It's increasing the awareness of how how wives of combat vets with PTSD are at the highest risk of potentially lethal domestic violence of any demographic in the nation. You know, when we talked to April last week, um, the statistic that has come up several times is that the sometimes the highest risk is up to 70% when someone finally decides to leave the family in the case of a violent situation. Can you talk about that? A year ago today, when we closed on the um, signed the closing paperwork on the sale of the house that I had lived in with my husband. He got his M4 Mm. semi-automatic weapon and began uh, making threats uh, and making threats against me. And tried to commit <clears throat> so we had all kinds of law I had all kinds of law enforcement involved and he they found him and he tried to commit suicide by cop as often 
happens. Um, so I can speak from personal experience about how uh, dangerous leaving can be. Thank you for sharing that. I know that wasn't easy to do. To shift a little bit, you found that you had to make changes for your life so that you could move forward, so that you could leave behind this dysfunction that was quite widespread, and I'll leave people to read the book themselves. And talk about some of the alternative you used um, to help yourself as a caregiver, because self-care is something that they just do not want to embrace. It, it's just hard to fit in time-wise. It's hard to fit in mentally. It's hard to believe you're worthy of taking the time. And you really did make a concerted effort as you tried to grasp back you. And I think our listeners would like to hear that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I knew, I knew, I knew at the end of all of this that it was either going to be the worst thing that ever happened to me or I, I could make it the best thing, but it was going to be up to me. All right. And I was so, so, so clear about that. And I called all these mental health professionals and providers and, and to a person, they kept saying, oh, your situation's too complex for me. I can't help you. And I said, wow, I am so on my own. Um, uh. And so what I did from that is I just kind of figured out my way forward one step at a time, one day at a time. The self-care, I mean, getting massage. I had not been, had any kind of human touch for years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And the body holds trauma. The body mm -hmm. stores trauma. So um, that was an important piece. It was um, doing bilateral movement and, and, and music therapy and drumming circle. I, I know. I never would. What the heck is that? I never intended or expected to find myself, myself sitting in a drumming circle. But I got to tell you, I felt better when I left. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, I kept doing what felt, what made me feel better. Okay. Even, even if uh, uh, my mind was like, are you, are you kidding me? Um, I spent so, I had to give myself permission to grieve mm -hmm. and to not pretend anymore that it was okay or that I was okay. I had to give myself permission to not be okay. I had to, to allow myself to hurt. And they're, oh my God, mm. oh my God, the, the grief was insane. And there were, I spent a lot of time outdoors and um, with, um, uh, you know, uh, my horse and, and goats. And uh, because just being in the presence of that brings, brought me to a space of being present with myself. And when that happens, the emotional work that needs to occur will take place organically. It will take place organically. There were other days that I would go to a movie theater, not to see the movie, but just so that I could sit in the dark and, and not be alone when I cried. Um, so it was, it was, I also really started reaching out to and connecting with uh, a faith-based group and, you know, spiritual community. Uh, that, that was essential uh, because you feel like you're so alone and it's like, wow, God, where'd you go? Mm -hmm. um, so it was all of those kinds of things and just being as 
gentle and, and, and allowing myself to be human again. Caregivers have this idea uh, because we're expected to be superwoman, we become it. And that doesn't, in the long run, it didn't do me that many favors, I gotta be honest with you. So I had to give myself permission uh, to, be, to become human again. You know, there's a quote in your book that I absolutely love by um, Kathleen Harris Causey when you were talking with her toward the end of your marriage. And it was adapting to dysfunction is not the highest expression of love. And she says, you don't have to set yourself on fire to keep someone else warm. And that resonated. Yeah, because that's what we are too often trained and expected to do is, is not just as caregivers, I think, but to a certain extent still in this society as women. Is the you know, expectation that we'll do that. Thank you so much for sharing these very personal experiences with us. And we barely touched on what is included in the book. And Stacy, your book is available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, where else? I expect all of the independent booksellers uh, okay. as well. And, and if folks uh, would like to get an autographed copy, they're um, more than welcome to just send me an email through my website, which is stacybannerman.com. Fantastic. I, I know that Ty and I have just so appreciated talking with you. And I know that our audience needs to know they're not alone and to hear what is happening out there. And we thank you so much for your personal experience, your time, and your compassion to help others. Come listen to us again next week, Military Network Radio, next Tuesday. What a pleasure to talk with you today. Oh, thank you, ladies. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your